0: Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Before we begin, I want to let you know about a new show from CuriousCast that I think you might really, really enjoy. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using Internet trolls and hackers and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel this, this giant mystery with the help of those who know best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters even a former Russian KGB agent. Join Europe Bureau Chief of Global News, Jeff Semple. He goes on a journey to unravel how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. You can listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying the ongoing history of new music. Do it. Trust me, you'll love it. When I say the word shrine, what comes to mind? Lourdes? A temple in the Himalayas? Maybe something secular like a war memorial? Or it could be something makeshift, like flowers placed on the side of a road where someone died. Shrines appear in pop culture, too. Any place that has been deemed important because of its history or its associations can be considered a shrine. It's a place people visit so they can see things for themselves. Now, rock and roll has many shrines. The field where Buddy Holly's plane crashed near Mason City, Iowa in 1959. The site of the first Woodstock in 1969. Elvis's Graceland doesn't get much bigger than that, does it? But what about in the modern era of rock? There must be places where people make pilgrimages. Well, of course there are. And here are a bunch of them. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again. I'm Alan Cross, and we're going to take a bit of a road trip this time. We're going to visit Hallowed Ground, sites that have become forever more sacred in some way to fans of alt-rock. People actually plan vacations around these places. I know I have. There's just something about actually seeing where it actually happened. Being there just makes it so much more real and alive. You're not reading about it, you're there. There are many dozens of alt rock shrines, but I've picked out my favorites. Some you may have never heard of, but trust me when I tell you that there are people who travel from around the world just to be in their presence, even if the physical thing doesn't exist anymore. For example, the first time I went to London, I got on the Tube and went up to Camden. Away from the markets and the crowds on Inverness Street is a pub called The Good Mixer. Now, trust me when I tell you that it ain't much, but if you're a fan of the Britpop era, you have to at least stop in for a pint. In the early and middle 90s, this became a hangout for many of the people who would form the bands of the era. Guys from Blur and Oasis got stupid drunk there many times not together, of course. Other regulars included the Libertines and then later the Darkness and Travis. When Britpop hit and word got out, everybody descended on the good mixer, something that really pissed off the regular clientele, regular working class blokes who really didn't appreciate the noise coming from the back room. That's where many a band was formed and many a song took shape. Now, the rock stars and their hangers on have long moved on, but the place still has a cool rock and roll vibe to it with its pool tables and well-stocked music library and Britpop fans still visit and buy the T-shirts. So, if you ever find yourself in London, and if you have any affinity at all for the kind of music that came out of Britain in the middle 1990s, the good mixer in Camden is an authentic Britpop shrine. From London, we moved north to Manchester, to a place on Coronation Street. Yes, Coronation Street. It's in the East End. If you have a copy of the Smiths' The Queen Is Dead album, you've probably stared at the picture of the band standing in front of a building called the Salford Lads Club. Now, this place has stood there since 1904, when it was founded by Robert Baden Powell, the guy who founded the Boy Scouts. The Smiths decided to pose there because of the club's history. The club, though, was not really amused. They hired lawyers to say that they weren't Smiths fans and that the band's music and lyrics were not congruent with the club's values and beliefs. At the very least, they wanted everyone to know that anything the Smiths did was not connected to the Salford Lads Club, nor did they appreciate this appropriation of their name and image. Later, when Smiths fans started showing up to recreate the photo featuring themselves, the club wasn't very welcoming, even to people who had come from halfway around the world just for the opportunity of taking that one picture. Shove off! We don't need your kind around here! Still, they came. And posing outside the Salford Lads Club is every bit of pilgrimage for Smiths fans, as it is for Beatles fans to use the crosswalk down the street from Abbey Road Studios in St. John's Wood in London. It took years for the club to lighten up and to figure out that, well, maybe they should take advantage of their status as a Smith Shrine. And they have, a little bit. They even took £20,000 from Morrissey to help with some renovations. Still, if you do visit, don't expect too much from the landlords. Smiths and Big Mouth Strikes Again from The Queen Is Dead, the album featuring artwork that turned the Salford Lads Club into an alt-rock shrine. Next we fly west to Dublin for a visit to Mount Temple Comprehensive School on Malahide Road. This is like Bethlehem to U2 fans because this is where the band was formed in 1976. Now, if you ever plan on making a pilgrimage to this shrine, start by watching the movie It Might Get Loud, which features The Edge hanging out with Jack White and Jimmy Page. There's a part of the film where The Edge takes us through the school, showing the bulletin board where Larry Mullen first posted the note asking for people to join his band. There's the room where you 2 used to rehearse. And then he takes us outside to an elevated slab of concrete, which is where he says U2 played in public for the very first time. They were called Feedback then. History records this performance was part of a school talent contest where they played um, Show Me the Way by Peter Frampton, some Bay City Rollers, and a medley of Beach Boys songs. If you go, just remember that it's still a proper school and that they might not welcome trespassers in the hallways. <laughs> ¶¶ They probably didn't sound that good playing on that concrete slab, but who would have guessed that when that recording was made in 1981, this band would be able to stage a world tour that would gross three-quarters of a billion dollars. Mount Temple Comprehensive School, our third alt-rock shrine. This is a tour through a series of historic alt-rock shrines, and we've just landed in New York. When it came time for the Beastie Boys to start thinking about the artwork for their second album, they wanted something that exemplified their New York existence. Ad-Rock got things started when he heard an old radio commercial for a men's clothing store in Brooklyn. The name of the store was Paul's Boutique. Hey, that would make a good name for a record, he thought. The problem was that Paul's Boutique didn't exist anymore. It had gone out of business, so they had to fake one. They found a store called Lee's Sportswear right at the corner of Ludlow and Rivington streets. And that's not in Brooklyn. It's on the Lower East Side. A sign was made up and hung over the sidewalk. A photographer named Jeremy Chetan took a panoramic shot, which was then folded down the middle for the record. When the album was released on July 25th, 1989, the whole thing landed with a thud. Everyone who was hoping for more songs like Fight for Your Right to Party and Girls and all the other frat boy stuff from the first album was very disappointed. Paul's Boutique was branded as a failure. It wasn't until much later that people began to realize what a work of genius it was. The production, the sampling, the clever use of beats. That album is now considered to be a landmark recording, an essential part of anyone's music collection. But back to the sportswear store. When the album finally took off, the sportswear place disappeared and a restaurant called Paul's Boutique opened up. It stayed there until 1997 when it was sold and then renamed The Three Monkeys. It was a great place to go for falafels and shawarma after a night of heavy drinking. Unfortunately, a fire ripped through the place in January of 2011. There's not much to see anymore unless the owners decide to rebuild. Now, well, at least its existence is well documented. Hey, 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 ladies. Hey, 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 ladies. One more time. Andy boys from paul's boutique if you want to make a pilgrimage to where the building used to stand it's at 99 rivington in manhattan all right we need to take a big detour here it's back to the airport for a flight down to kingston jamaica because he remains so important to jamaican culture there were shrines to bob marley all over the place and because he was so key in the spread of ska and reggae all around the planet people come from everywhere to soak it up The house where Bob grew up is out in the country, a place called Nine Miles in St. Anne Parish. This is where Bob was born. The whole village is owned by the Marley family. Rasta guides will take you through the house, which is now a museum, and right next door is a mausoleum. Bob's remains are there, along with the guitar he was buried with, the remains of his mother, who died in 2008, and his brother, who was killed in 1990. Now, there are plenty of tours available if you ever find yourself in Jamaica on vacation. One of the places you'll go is Mount Zion Rock, which was Marley's favorite place to meditate. Anyone who's ever been on any of these tours rave about it. A real shrine if there ever was one. From Jamaica we fly to Atlanta, where we connect on a short commuter hop to Athens, Georgia. This of course is where R.E.M. came from. Their biggest album was Automatic for the People from 1992. It sold millions, was nominated for a Grammy, and six of its twelve tracks were released as singles. But I want to talk about the title of the album, Automatic for the People. That's the motto of a local restaurant called Weaver D's Delicious Fine Foods, it's on East Broad Street. The phrase is right on the sign, hanging out over the street from the bright lime green building. It's nothing fancy, but it's good. Solid southern stuff. Awesome fried chicken and barbecue pork and macaroni and cheese. Weaver D. himself still runs the place. Actually, his name is Dexter Weaver. He's a former evangelist and shoeshine boy. And yes, there are some REM posters on the wall. And you can buy a baseball cap on the way out. AM and Man on the Moon from their 1992 album Automatic for the People. The shrine is Weaver D's Delicious Fine Foods in Athens, Georgia. We now move west, and in a second we'll end up in California, out in the desert, looking for a very specific tree. Welcome back, I'm Alan Cross, and we're traveling around the world looking for sites that have become enshrined in alt-rock history. And we're now somewhere in the Mojave Desert, trying to find a particular tree. Just before Christmas in 1986, U2 got on a bus with their photographer friend, Anton Corbin. They headed out into the desert to shoot some photos for a new album. They were going to call this record Desert Song, so it made sense that they go out to the desert to take some pictures. They wandered about for three days, staying in crappy motels and posing for shots along the way. On day one... Corbin and Bono got into a discussion about Joshua trees, the twisted-looking things that somehow managed to survive in Death Valley. After getting deep into the mythology around these trees, Bono suggested that the new record be called the Joshua tree. Day two of this odyssey was spent looking for the perfect Joshua tree. It had to be appropriately wizened and had to be standing alone. It couldn't be amongst a grove of other trees or sitting amidst some brush. Suddenly, Anton spotted a single tree from his window on the south side of the bus while they were on State Road 190. They pulled over and spent about 20 minutes taking various shots around that one lone tree. Then they got on the bus and left. For years, U2 fans searched for this same tree. The band never said where it was because they were worried it would be killed by souvenir hunters. But it was eventually found. And when Google Earth came along, well, it was easy. The tree, sadly, is dead. It died of natural causes and fell over sometime in 2000. You can't see it from the road anymore. But with a little help from the Internet, you'll know where to stop. People have been leaving messages by arranging stones in the ground. There's also something called the YouTube, which is a weathertight container. Open it up and you could leave a message for whoever comes along next. And you'll know you're in the right place when you find a concrete slab in the desert floor with a plaque that reads, Have you found what you're looking for? for. U2's Joshua Tree Tree, or what's left of it, west of Death Valley on Highway 190, if you know where to look. Our second to last stop is Berkeley, California, or West Berkeley to be specific. The address is 924 Gilman Street, probably the most important all-ages punk club in the world. It doesn't even have a proper name, people just call it by its address, 924 Gilman. It doesn't look like much, it's a nondescript building in sort of an industrial area right next to a wicker shop. And as far as I know, the owner of the wicker shop still owns the lease on the building. 924 Gilman was founded in 1986. It's a members-only place. If you want to belong, you have to pay $2 per year. That entitles you to sit in on membership meetings on the first and third Saturday of every month. That's when club business is discussed. There are rules. No drugs, no alcohol, no violence, no racism, no homophobia, or major label bans allowed. Interesting how that last condition is lumped in with all the rest, huh? And it means that Gilman Street alumni like Green Day and The Offspring and AFI and Primus and even Bad Religion aren't really welcome anymore. It's a tough place, but considering the number of important punk bands that have filtered through there, it's an important place for punk fans to visit. Here's some Green Day from their indie days. They were welcome at Gilman Street when they recorded this original version of the song in 1992. Green Day, from when they were still welcome at the Bay Area's most enduring punk shrine, the club at 924 Gilman Street in West Berkeley, California. One more, Kurt Cobain's Last House. The address is 171 Lake Washington Boulevard East in the Denny Blaine District of Seattle. It's a big place, 7,000 square feet with four bedrooms, five bathrooms, and five fireplaces. It was built in 1902 by Elbert Blaine, old Seattle money. And it's right across the lake from the house Bill Gates built for nearly $100 million. Courtney had the greenhouse where Kurt's body was found in 1994, torn down in 1996. A year later, Courtney sold the place to a Japanese businessman. There's now more landscaping, a big fence and security cameras surrounding the place in an attempt to preserve some kind of privacy. Trespassing was a big problem for a while. Right next door, though, is tiny Veretta Park. This is the pilgrimage site. There were two benches in the park, on which people have scrawled all kinds of notes and messages and tributes along with wax residue from where people have burned candles. Beside the benches is a huge cedar, at the base of which is where Courtney allegedly spread some of Kurt's ashes in 1994. Inside the fence, on the old property, is a willow tree. Some of Kurt's ashes are definitely there. When Courtney sold the house, she put a clause in the contract that stipulated that she'd be able to return to the house at any time to remove that tree and replant it elsewhere. I have no idea if she's ever followed through on that because, uh, well, we can't see onto the property. One last thing. If you go, there isn't anywhere really to park. There are lots of no parking signs, and enforcement tends to be rather vigorous. Maybe you want to get a cab, sit in the park for a while, and then have the cabbie come by and pick you up later. Chances are you'll have company, too. So those are nine alt-rock shrines that people from around the world visit every year. There are plenty, plenty more, naturally. If you would like to put together your own pilgrimage itinerary, Fodders, the travel guide people, used to have a couple of books called Rock and Roll Traveler. One edition was for the U.S. and another covered the U.K. and Ireland. They went out of print a while back, but I'm sure used copies are still around. A more recent book is called Never Mind the Bollards, a road trip around England's rock and roll landmarks. Author Max Woolridge has done a nice job putting together a tour of important places to visit in Britain. It's published by Footprint Travel Guides. As someone who has visited a number of rock and roll shrines, I can tell you that it's worth it. Like I said at the beginning, there is no substitute for actually being there and feeling it. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.